I'm Pastor Bill. We're glad you guys are here. So uh, what our, one of our elders, Dave Walker, said earlier is 100% true. We've been working through Luke chapter 2, um, looking at really verses 10 and 11, and just unpacking those. And I want to read those, kind of refresh your mind if, um, you know, you forget. And that's Luke 2, 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so we've been looking at the, those verses over the last few weeks. We kind of broke them down into very specific things. We looked at the idea of fear not, I bring you good news. We looked at the idea of how it's good news of great joy. That's actually literally in the Greek, it's evangelizing great joy. And then this past Sunday, we looked at the idea of how it's good news for all people, um, people who are, who are grimy, people who think they have their lives together, people who live in the United States, people who live in China. And we looked at this idea of how it's good news for everybody, right? It's just uh, good news for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. It's good news for everyone. And today, we want to look at why it's good news. And they tell us right here in verse 11, for, why is it good news? For, because unto you is born this day a Savior. A Savior is born. So the question is this, though, save from what? Because we can say a Savior is born, but what are we being saved from? And I don't know if some of you guys are into The Chosen. How many of you guys watch The Chosen? You're Chosen fans? Chosenites? I don't know. What do they call Chosen fans? All right, and there, this was a big debate leading up to Jesus' birth, and it was a big debate all through Jesus' life as why the Messiah would come, because there were all kinds of people out there who had all kinds of opinions on what the Messiah, what the Savior was going to come, what the Savior was going to do. And so I think it's safe to say that even these shepherds who heard this and said, oh, a Savior's born, they had their own preconceived ideas of what this newborn king would be saving them from specifically. You see, there were kind of three main ideas here, and none of them were true, right? And so the, the first one is this, the zealots. The zealots were people who were zealous against Rome. They were zealous for the political kingdom of Israel, the political kingdom of Judah, and they wanted nothing more than to gather everybody together, form a militia, and kick Rome out of Jerusalem. That's what they wanted. And so when you see in the New Testament, it talks about Simon the zealot. He was someone who came from that particular group. So these were guys who were like the political militia of the day. And so the zealots, when they would hear this, good news, a savior has been born, they immediately are thinking the political warrior leader is born who's going to lead us on revolt against Rome. And then you had the Pharisees. They also were expecting a savior but as they looked at the course of history with the exile and, and Israel being kicked out of the land, then the southern kingdom of Judah being kicked out of the land, and everybody being kicked out because they wouldn't follow the law, the Pharisees believed that the kind of Savior they needed would be the one who was going to come back 
who was going to restore religious order, that finally all those sinners would stop doing what they're doing, and they'd be more like us Pharisees. And so they wanted a religious Savior. And then you had the poor. You had the poor, you had the wretches, you had the ones who were oppressed by Roman taxes, you had the ones who felt oppressed by the Pharisees, you had the, the everyday, everyday Jewish boy or girl who was growing up in Nazareth or wherever it might be, and they wanted this economic savior because the promised land in the past was a land flowing with milk and honey, and it was a land where, you know, your bread bowl was blessed, and your, your loaf of bread was blessed, and your leftover bread was, was a, lot of, a lot of bread blessing going on. And so they wanted that economic Savior who was going to come, who was going to restore things, who was going to bring about things the way that they thought they wanted it. You see, everybody had this preconceived idea of why the Savior was coming. And if we're honest with ourselves, we jump forward to 2022, almost 2023, we can relate to each of these views because they're very much echoed in our own day and age. Am I right? You have people on the left, on the right. You have people on every side of the political spectrum, and they think all we need is a changing of the guard in Washington and then finally, everything is going to be utopia. But we know it's not true. That's what the zealots wanted as well. They just wanted a changing of the guard in terms of the political infrastructure. You have people today who they think, you know, what's wrong with this country is that people don't come to church. And when they do go to church, the church meets in a bar for two years, which doesn't even count as a real church. That's where we met for two years, right? And so you have people who think the biggest problem is we took X out of school. And if we just put that back into school, everything would be right. That was the Pharisee, the religious savior they were looking for. And you have people today who think what we really need is to take money away from all of this rich and prosperous people, redistribute it to everybody else, and then everything is going to be fine. Maybe Robin Hood or Karl Marx can help us out. You see, people today are looking for the same exact things that people were looking for back then. But the truth is that all of those things are temporary, and Jesus didn't come as Savior for any of those areas. Sure, he helped the poor. Obviously, Jesus was a spiritual guy. He was a religious guy, if we can even say that. He followed the sacrificial system. He respected the Torah and the law. Jesus even acted as a leader. He is the King of Kings. But all of the preconceived ideas that people had were shadows of the reality of who Jesus is. And so why did Jesus come? What did he save us from? And we see this most clearly in Matthew 1. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we have two things here. We have Jesus is going to save us, save people from their sins, and we have Jesus will be called God with us, Emmanuel. And these two things, I want you to know, these are integrally connected because in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first people, what we see in that early narrative explanation is that they walk freely with God in the garden, that they literally are hanging out with God in the cool of the day. That's their habit. 
is to walk with him, to enjoy him, to talk with him, to have his presence tangibly with them. But then they refuse to listen to God's voice. They decide they're going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're going to rebel against what God has commanded them to do and not to do. And the Bible calls this sin. And that sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin that they chose, drove a wedge between God and humankind. And if you think about it this way, it's as though spiritually all of a sudden they were on the same playing field and then this, dry, this giant wedge dropped and now there was this spiritual Grand Canyon between the two of them. And it didn't matter how far Adam could jump, even though he was in great shape, he was unhindered by clothing because he was naked right now, right? It didn't matter how far he jumped, the truth is that he's not going to bridge that chasm. And so God makes a promise, even in Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible, that he's going to rectify that problem. And he says it's better for them to leave, to not eat from the tree of life, because then they might live forever separated. And so it's better for them to die in faith, believing in the promise that I'm going to fix this. And so that's what God does. He says, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to fix this. You see, because God wants to be with his creation. That's God's heartbeat. God desires to be with his, his creation. God, God made us in his image, but he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so God's presence is then separated from people. And throughout the Old Testament, what we see are times when God's presence dips into our world. And there are these kind of special moments in redemptive history. It dips into our world in the burning bush. When Moses is called into his, his redemptive act of ministry, it's, it's, it dips into our world when God leads the Israelites across the Red Sea as a pillar of fire and as a pillar of cloud during the day. When they inaugurate the tabernacle, which is like their mobile church building, as soon as they inaugurate it, God's presence fills it because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it's so heavy they, they can't stay in it. And then eventually they build this permanent tabernacle, which becomes known as the temple. And again, the presence of God fills it. And what's special about that place is that the temple has the presence of God, and it's in Jerusalem. And if you want access to God's presence, where do you need to go? You need to go where the temple is. And this is exactly why the Jews kept saying, historically, God's not going to destroy our city. His presence is here. He's not going to destroy our city. Don't worry about the Babylonians. His presence is here. And that's why in Ezekiel chapter 10 through 12, before the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem, there's this beautiful picture, terrifying picture, of God's presence leaving the temple and exiting the building. And then guess what happens? The Babylonians come and they crush it. Now, why do I share this? Because from, when they rebuild the temple after the exile, guess what? Presence never comes back. And so for hundreds of years, the Jews had been wondering, when is the presence of God going to come back? God's promise in Genesis 3 is all about restoring the presence of God. The lack of a presence of God is caused by a sin, our sin. That's the wedge in between us. And so when is the presence of of God going to come. And so for hundreds of years, the presence of God is absent. And the presence of God doesn't come back into Jerusalem until Jesus Christ is born, and then he walks down the Mount of Olives, and he comes into the, the temple to flip the tables. 
That's the first time the presence of God comes back in. And so what is Christmas all about? Well, yes, it's about family and friends. It's about holidays. It's about presents and cookies and Christmas trees. It probably involves traditions in your home, nativity, shepherds, family fun, elves. But through it all, Christmas is about a baby who would be a savior. Savior from what? Our sins. But saving, being saved from our sins is really about being saved from an eternity separated from the presence of God. See, it's not just about like, well, I don't want you to be a bad person. It's about the fact that God wants to be with you. And so on Christmas, we celebrate when God's presence came down to earth, clothed in the likeness of sinful flesh in this little baby, that the presence of God that had been so hard to find since Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, now it's walking, well, crawling among people once again. See, what I want you to know is that God wants to be with you, but your sin creates a wedge between the two of you. And it's not just the stuff that you do. It's not saying, well, I don't do a lot of bad stuff, like I'm pretty good. Adam and Eve's sin has created a wedge between you and God, and that wedge is passed down like a hereditary disease. That God wants to be with us, but the sin of Adam and Eve causes a wedge between us, and that wedge has to be removed, it has to be dealt with, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to pay the full penalty of wrath for our sins, he came to be raised from the grave so that he could conquer death and that by trusting in him, we could live forever. That's how he saves us from our sins, this little baby. He grows up to be a man. He lives a perfect life without sin. He dies on a cross, a criminal's death. And that was how God is going to deal with sin by punishing Jesus. Although Jesus is innocent, he receives the punishment that we deserve. And then we are forgiven by placing our faith in who he is and what he has done. But see, for most people, and if you're here in church, right? You're in church, whether it's a church in, in a restaurant or a church in an auditorium. If you're here today, you probably already have some mental agreement with what I'm saying. You're like, well, that's why I'm here. Like, I didn't think this was, I didn't think the Eagles game was going on in here. Like, I know that, <laughs> okay, I know what this is all about. And what I want you to realize is this, it's about saving faith, it's not about a mental agreement with the facts about Jesus. And some of you were reading this past month Sinclair Ferguson's Advent book, and my favorite part of that book was when he told this illustration about a child who asks for a bike for Christmas. That was my favorite part of the whole book. And he says, what is saving faith? What is trust? What is true belief? And he says, this, what is hope? He says, it's this. If my daughter asks for a bike for Christmas... And one day she looks out the window and I'm carrying a big package into the garage that's covered in wrapping paper and a bow and it has two handlebars. She will be very confident that she is in fact getting a bike for Christmas. Now if you said to her, do you think you're getting a bike for Christmas? She would most certainly say, yes, I do, because I'm not an idiot, right? Although she hasn't received the bike, she believes it. Now, technically, I, maybe I'm going to give the bike to Dave, right? 
But she's believing because she has this faith in what she, she knows. And this is faith. This is true faith. This is saving faith. See, it's not wishy-washy. It's not wistful thinking. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for, even though they are currently unseen. And so saving faith isn't just saying, I know the story of Jesus. I grew up hearing it. It's saying, I know the story of Jesus, and I am banking my future salvation on the fact that it's true. That Jesus has done what he said he was going to do, that he is who he says he is, that he's coming back like he says he's coming back. See, this Christmas, Jesus wants you to know that you don't have to wish for heaven. You don't have to hope that you're forgiven. You can know with certainty, like that illustration, that Jesus died for your sins, that he forgives you if you trust in him. That Jesus was born to save us from our sins and to save us from an eternity without the presence of God. And so if we trust in Jesus today, we don't need to wait for heaven to experience his presence because he sends his Holy Spirit to us now so we can enjoy that promise today as a guarantee of a reality that is going to be spectacular and beyond comprehension when we are finally, officially reunited with his presence forever. And that's what we celebrate on Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father God, I ask that as we sing these last few songs and as we rush out to go to dinner or parties or whatever we're doing, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know the truth of this special gift of Emmanuel and that we would truly take moments tonight, tomorrow to pause and to ensure that we are trusting fully in you. And so, God, I pray that in your name. Amen. <laughs>